From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. Prologue. The Mourner's Kaddish. This is a Friday evening Shabbat service at Temple Sinai in South Burlington. The voice you're hearing is Rabbi David Edelson. You may be seated. I'm Jewish. And while I don't consider myself a deeply religious person, there are aspects of Judaism that have always resonated with me. There's one in particular that reporting this story made me think about a lot. It's not a single prayer. It's more of an underlying value. It's the emphasis Judaism places on remembrance, remembering the life someone lived, the person someone was, even long after they die. This feels especially relevant these days two years and counting into a global pandemic, on what feels some days like we're on the precipice of World War III. We turn now, as always, to those we remember, those that are not with us. Every Friday at Temple Sinai, Rabbi Edelson cedes the floor. She never drove a car. She never went on an airplane. Anyone grieving the recent death of a loved one, or anyone remembering someone on the anniversary of their death, they can say a few words in front of the entire congregation. Her only dream was to have a big, happy Jewish family, and she succeeded in doing so. And every time my pants are sagging, I will just hear her in my head, pull up your chaisons. <laughs> Eugene Goldberg was my dad. The thing that I remember uh, the most about him uh, in terms of an influence is his love of music. Best um, uh, was my father's youngest sibling. She exhibited love for everybody in our extended family, and our times with her were terrific. Grief and sadness do go hand in hand with loss. But there's also joy in remembering someone's life, pride in carrying their legacy forward in our own lives. And in Judaism, there's an emphasis on doing all of this out loud in a group setting. Well, if you're in mourning have a yard site, or it's your tradition to rise for those who might not have family, please rise in body or spirit for the Mourner's Kaddish, which is on page 598. The Mourner's Kaddish is the prayer Jews say after someone dies and also on the anniversary of their death. It can only be recited in groups of at least 10 people. This forces those grieving to come out of isolation, to join the community and share their grief. Amen. May God give you comfort, those who are bereaved. And may the wonderful people you shared, um, as well as those who didn't share, continue to remind us of what came before us and what, therefore what we owe to what comes after us. You can do the community stuff without having to do the religion stuff, and that's fair. This is Jessamine West. She lives in Randolph, not a member of Temple Sinai, and she likes being Jewish even though she doesn't feel very religious. That's okay. Like, that's not against the rules. At the start of my reporting for this episode, I put out a call to Jewish Vermonters to ask about their experiences of being Jewish in Vermont. 
Jessamine got in touch to talk about a single phrase. It's six words, sometimes seven. You may have heard people say it and not even realized it comes from Judaism. But it does. And it captures the Jewish approach to grief and remembrance really well. Well, it's just, it's just so poignant, right? I promise I'll tell you what this phrase is. But I want you to fully appreciate it when I do. So, here's a quick story about how Jessamine came to appreciate it. I'm one of those people, I can be kind of awkward and I learn a lot of etiquette from reading it in books and trying it out and seeing if that works good and being like, yeah, it worked, or oh, that didn't go well. One of the areas where Jessamine used to feel lost was those passing interactions with people who are grieving. You know, when you run into an acquaintance who's lost a loved one and you aren't sure whether or not you should say something. Or when someone posts about a loss on social media and you spend five minutes hovering in the comment box debating whether or not to write something. What can you possibly say that is both concise and also meaningful? You know, thoughts and prayers obviously have been ruined by the last administration and previous to that, right? It's like the emptiest of things to say. Jessamine also considered what she describes as the Christian ways to respond. You know, either they're with God now, which never felt good to me, or, um, you know, sorry for your loss. And I always thought that sounded really trite and pat, but I think for a lot of people, no, it's the etiquette. It's the please and thank you about working with people experiencing grief. She wasn't satisfied. So she turned to Judaism, and the way that Judaism deals with grief hit the sweet spot. Grief is a thing. Right. It's a thing you deal with. You know, um, you sit shiva after somebody dies. You you have all these traditions. You, you rip your little garment and you, you do your things. People come by the house. You cover the mirrors. And since I enjoy those traditions generally, the whole idea of when you're talking to somebody about a loss they've experienced, talking about may their memory be a blessing to me is just a way of saying, you know, I hope the good feelings that this person had in your life are things that can comfort you when you don't have that person. May their memory be a blessing. Sometimes people might say, may their memory be for a blessing. Same idea. That's the phrase. I've heard it said my whole life, but I never thought about it too deeply before talking to Jessamine. And now I can't stop thinking about it. It's not just a nice thing to say to someone who is grieving, although I think it's that too. It doesn't just capture what I love about Judaism in six or sometimes seven simple words, although it does that too. It also provides meaning for a reporter, that's me, tasked with remembering the history of an entire people in Vermont, a people who have long been shepherds of their own communal history, keenly aware of how they would be remembered and the legacy they'd leave behind, even as that history was playing out in real time. I think that their urge to keep a record indicates a kind of historical sense. They knew that what they were doing was in their small world of Pulteney, Vermont, historical. It was significant. So let's get into it. Let's remember the Jewish people who lived Vermont history. Their memory is a blessing. Welcome to Brave Little State, 
VPR's people-powered journalism project. Here on the show, we answer your questions about Vermont, our region, and its people, because we think our journalism is better when you're a part of it. Today. What is the history of Judaism and the Jewish people in Vermont? A question about a religion and a people who have often been overlooked. I thought I was coming to a place where none of that existed, and it does. You know, it's not hiding. One of people's kind of greatest fears is of being forgotten. So I dig into the history. And I could just hear them speaking their particular brand of German in this little town in Vermont in the 19th century. To learn more about our present. It's intentional when you go to shul. It's um, not something that you do because your neighbors do it. Right, exactly. Because your neighbors it's are not doing it and none do not neighbors. know why you are. We have support from VPR sustaining members. Welcome. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. Vermont's Jewish history stretches back hundreds of years. It's a lot. And frankly, it's a lot more interesting than I would have guessed at the start of my reporting. While this is by no means an exhaustive account, there's enough here that I'm breaking things up into five chapters. Chapter 1. Members of the Book For a long time, the story of Vermont's first known Jewish congregation was stuck, literally, in Denver, Colorado, shoved into the drawer of a cabinet in an antique shop. Or maybe it was a flea market? I'm not exactly sure where he found it, but there, there was this minutes book. The voice you're hearing is someone who has spent countless hours studying, dissecting, and analyzing this book. So, who I am. I'm Robert Schein, and I'm a professor of Jewish studies at Middlebury, where I've been on the faculty since 1985. Robert is the type of person writers in Hollywood might conjure up if they were creating a professor character. Straight-laced, wise, scholarly. It seems like he never needed to become a professor. He just is one. And in 2007, he came into possession of a little book. Marbled cover. Yellowed pages. Blue lines to guide your writing. And it's been scribbled all over in fountain pen. And it's a beautiful document. It had come to Robert during some side research to help a local museum with a new exhibit. And that was a minutes book from the middle of the 19th century. A minutes book filled with meeting notes and other important records from a Jewish community in Pulteney, Vermont. It had been discovered by a rabbi of all people who was sifting through some kind of flea market or antiques shop in Denver, Colorado. And that rabbi had sent it to the National Archives for American Jewish History for safekeeping. No one knows how this Pulteney Minutes book migrated from Vermont to Denver. And yet, 
now it has migrated from Denver back to Vermont. Or at least a high-resolution scan of it has. Robert would later figure out that this book is the earliest known record of organized Jewish life in Vermont. And he could sense it was important at first glance. And then once he managed to identify the unique Judeo-German dialect the book's authors were using, no small task, their words jumped off the pages. And I could just hear them talking to one another, speaking their particular brand of German in this little town in Vermont in the 19th century. The community that wrote this book way back in the decade after the American Civil War is different from the early American Jewish immigrants that live in the popular imagination. Instead of settling in tenements in New York City's Lower East Side, these Jews ventured north from the city, into the countryside, as pack peddlers. Pack peddlers were like mobile one-person general stores. They sold needles and thread. Other household supplies, uh, pots and pans, as much as he can pack into a kind of backpack. Peddlers who persevered for long enough settled down in small country towns and opened stores. Eventually, these stores dotted the Champlain Valley. But there were still plenty of Jewish pack peddlers who hadn't settled down. And when the Sabbath came around, Friday afternoons, they would seek a place to spend the Sabbath since an observant Jew won't do business on the Sabbath and won't travel on the Sabbath and won't lug a backpack around on the Sabbath. It made sense for Jewish peddlers to spend Shabbat in a town where other Jews had already settled. Remember, Judaism is practiced in groups. Very little is known about the early Jewish Vermont communities that emerged. And the Minutes book offers the earliest and most thorough accounting. It details in real time one community's efforts to become a congregation, where to hold services, how to find a Torah, where to establish a Jewish cemetery. And of course, who paid for what? Like most group projects, there was some tension. It makes for amusing reading. Anybody who's been involved in any church or synagogue or organization knows that there's usually a couple of people who do the work and others who benefit and are not so quick or eager to participate in the work. Prior to the Jews in Pulteney, Robert says there were Jews in Burlington and Montpelier, but this particular community on the southwest border of Vermont is still the earliest organized Jewish community of which we have evidence. I think that their urge to keep a record indicates a kind of historical sense. They knew that what they were doing was in their small world of Pulteney, Vermont, Historical. It was significant. Significant, even without the trappings of more established religious communities. They didn't have a building that was their synagogue, but they referred to themselves as the members of the book. So in a way, the book established this community, this small community in the hinterlands of Vermont, a community that was part of the people of the book. Apparently, even though they didn't have a synagogue, the Pulteney Jewish community was big enough to split into two congregations over a deep disagreement. The very last entry in the book is about those two factions reconciling. Only those members of this book who, at this time, are in attendance today, are registered as members in the reconstituted congregation. E. Levy became president, Jacob Kane, secretary, Pulteney the 5th of September, 1874. 
That's the last entry in the in the in this minutes book. It leads me to think that this reconstituted congregation perhaps started a new minutes book that we don't have. It's in a different antique shop in Denver. Yes, who knows? And someday, maybe it'll show up. Is there a Jewish community in Pulteney today? Only the dead lying in their graves. It is a remarkable story and a testimony to the importance of archives and of preserving one's history. And I think that kind of nurturing of memory is really characteristically Jewish. Remember. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember who you are. After September 5th, 1874, there is little to document the exact fate of the Pulteney Jewish community. What we do know is that Jewish communities across the rest of the state continued growing, bolstered by a second wave of American Jewish immigration beginning in the late 1800s. Chapter 2. Little Jerusalem. My colleagues at Vermont PBS made a film in 2014 about the late 1800s and early 1900s in Vermont history. It's called Little Jerusalem, which was the old name for Burlington's Old North End back when it was the heart of Vermont Judaism. Here's a clip. The Burlington Jewish community almost entirely consists of a group of people from a couple of shtetls, the small rural villages just outside of Kufna, Lithuania. The particular shtetl that most of the Burlingtonians came from was a shtetl called Shaikashak. That is Vermont historian Jeffrey Potash. In 1885, in the early days of Little Jerusalem, a group of Jews established Ohave Tzedek, Vermont's first official Jewish house of worship. By the early 1900s, Little Jerusalem was bustling. Over a thousand residents crammed into just a few city blocks. There were not one, but three total synagogues. What is distinctive about the Burlington Jewish community is the remarkably homogeneous nature of the residents. Jeffrey Potash again. I recall a lady who came here in the late 1930s, and she was from a larger Jewish community, I believe, Boston or New York. And she said, my God, this is suffocating. And everybody was both looking out for everyone, and everybody knew everyone else's business. After World War II, Little Jerusalem started to fade. The younger generation of Jews, now second-generation Vermonters, spread out around Vermont and beyond. They weren't as connected to the traditional lifestyle their grandparents had brought with them from Lithuania, and some openly rejected it. For a while, the generations that left Little Jerusalem wanted to put it behind them. One more time, Jeffrey Potash. I think we're returning to recognize that it was an important piece of the Vermont story. Four synagogues in Burlington is a testimony to the fact that Little Jerusalem planted a seed of a vibrant and diverse Jewish community today. This community made international headlines in recent years when a rare mural from one of the now defunct Little Jerusalem synagogues was rediscovered. It's one of the last remaining examples in the world of an art form once popular in Eastern European synagogues, but which has now been nearly completely wiped out. Former Vermont Governor Madeleine Kunin 
who herself is Jewish, supported an effort to restore the mural to its original glory. We are fortunate here in Vermont to have such a treasure in our midst. It really reminds us of who we are and who we were, both as Jews and as Vermonters. Today, the mural is in the final stages of conservation, thanks in part to the efforts of Jeffrey Podash. It's now installed at the entrance of Ohave Tzedek, Vermont's oldest synagogue. Ohave Tzedek, by the way, now boasts the largest congregation in Vermont, about 300 families. Chapter 3. Jewish Counterculture. They didn't come to be Jewish necessarily. They just came because they were hippies, and they happened to be Jewish. Rabbi Toby Weissman is the director of Jewish Communities of Vermont, and she looks to the 1970s as another major inflection point for Jews in the state. There have been Jews who have moved to Vermont for over 100 years. But in the 70s, many Jews moved to Vermont, like Jewish hippies moved here to, you know, be Jewish and hippies. <laughs> this was an important trend, Jewish people moving to Vermont as part of the Back to the Land movement. These were mostly people from places like Boston or New York City who wanted to live out their values in a different kind of environment. This is Avram Pat, who just introduced himself in Yiddish, an old Jewish language originating in Germany. He's currently a Vermont state representative for the Lamoille Washington district. But to many Vermonters, he's simply known as the go-to guy for anything Yiddish. Avram grew up in the Bronx, in a Yiddish household. In my own background, the Yiddish was not just secular, but was also progressive labor movement-oriented. As important as these progressive values were, and still are, to Avram, he learned at a young age that he was better suited to act on them somewhere other than New York City. I had attended two different Yiddish-oriented summer camps in upstate New York, for two months every year. I spent a lot of time in the country. For a city boy, I learned early on what a starry night actually actually looked like. And, and then when I was a little bit older, I read Thoreau, and I really was like looking to get out, out of the city. Vermont was an obvious choice. So he moved to Plainfield and enrolled in Goddard College. Eventually, he connected to some other Jewish Vermonters, many of whom were trained musicians. And one day, one of his musical friends, Rick Winston, got an offer from the Barry Ethnic Heritage Festival. One of the organizers approached uh, Rick Winston and said, what, what if we, had, we haven't had any Jewish music at the Ethnic Heritage Festival? There was, you know, and, and what do you think? And Rick got a whole bunch of people together. It was a very large group. We practiced a few times. We got up and played. Uh, I was invited, although I played no instruments. I was the one person around uh, that new Yiddish songs. Right after we were done performing, people approached us and said, so do you do weddings? Can you get hired for a bar mitzvah? Um, and we realized that maybe a few of us should get a little more serious about this and practice a little more. Thus, the Nisht Geferlach Klezmer Band was born. 
By the way, they still perform today and also kindly provided the klezmer music you've been hearing throughout this episode. Klezmer music is a form of uh, Jewish music. Uh, it has its origins in Europe. A lot of it is uh, dance tunes for uh, simchas, for celebrations, uh, weddings, bar mitzvahs, and, and stuff like that. Klezmer music helps Avram stay connected to his Yiddish roots. But he's quick to point out that Vermont has Jewish roots of its own, which is something he didn't appreciate when he first came here in the 70s. Coming to Vermont as a young student and slowly learning that there were different threads of uh, Jewish life in, in this state, even though I thought I was coming to a place where the, none of that existed, and it does. You know, it's not hiding. Coming up, a look at how the Jews who came to Vermont in the 60s and 70s planted new roots in the 80s and ultimately made a lasting impact on Judaism throughout the region. We acquired, I think, a sense of, of destiny, of participating in Jewish history in a most vital and important way. That's next. Welcome back to Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. Today, I'm tracing Vermont's long Jewish history. We're up to the late 1970s. An influx of mostly progressive Jewish urbanites have moved to Vermont to become Jewish ruralites. And this new generation of Vermont Jews are about to leave their mark. Chapter 4. A Synagogue Without Walls. a matter of accident that we wound up in Vermont. R.D. Eno lives in Cabot. Like many who migrated to Vermont in the 70s, he grew up in New York City. Unlike many others, however, he and his wife didn't choose Vermont. At least, not really. We threw darts at a map and came up with New England, which was a place neither of us had ever lived. We wound up in Vermont. Part of the reason R.D. is fascinating to me is that he's not the kind of person I'd have expected to help transform Jewish life across an entire region. I never wanted to take myself too seriously. I'm not a rabbi, just a guy. But these are exactly the qualities that made R.D. perfectly suited for the job. The one thing I really dislike is piety. And that was something I wanted to avoid in everything I wrote and everything I tried to promote. There is something innately humorous, comic, certainly as opposed to tragic, in the presence of Jews and Judaism in the unfamiliar regions of New England. I try to make that fun. R.D. succeeded in making Judaism fun. But that wasn't his original goal. When he first moved to Vermont, he didn't even seek out the Jewish community at all. Instead, the community found him. I was sort of recruited into a Jewish brunch group that started up in Montpelier, and it must have been about 1981. He describes this brunch group as an alternative to Montpelier's Beth Jacob synagogue. Which was still pretty much the province of 
the older generation uh, who had kept the synagogue going since the early 20th century. Through this brunch group, R.D. met kindred spirits, Montpelier-area Jews who didn't conform to traditional Jewish ritual life, but nonetheless had an appetite for Judaism, in some form. Somehow the idea began to germinate of calling together Jews in uh, rural areas to form a kind of synagogue without walls. The Synagogue Without Walls took the form of a conference. The first conference on Judaism in rural New England took place in 1983 at Dartmouth College. We expected perhaps 100 people, and 250 people showed up. As I recall, it was pretty chaotic. But like good chaotic. The idea of building Judaism from the ground up was tremendously exciting. It was that excitement that propelled our little steering committee forward. They started publishing a newsletter for Jews across New England, and they held their second annual conference at Goddard College in 1984. And the second conference was even more exciting than the first. People stayed over. We had uh, dormitory accommodations. It was a full weekend affair. Even then, R.D. says he knew that that weekend was a moment in the development of a modern rural Jewish identity. We had a sense at that conference that we had somehow recapitulated the history of Jews in America in our weekend conference. Uh, We acquired, I think, a sense of, of destiny of participating in Jewish history in a most vital and important way. That gave us the momentum to carry on for the next 20 years. Soon, the conference moved to Linden State, its most permanent home. Jews would come to get together because there was nothing for them happening near where they lived all year long. And they would just have this one weekend. Rabbi Toby Weissman was part of the conference's board in the 90s. And she says the word conference doesn't really do it justice. It was kind of like going to Jewish summer camp, yeah, for the weekend. Jewish summer camp, or maybe a multi-day Jewish frat party? The dorms were pretty um, basic. You could hear everything going on in everyone's rooms, in the hallways. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't a place where you got a lot of sleep. Or perhaps a Jewish Bonnaroo? musical performances, art groups, uh, and uh, art exhibitions. Avram Pat and the Nisht Geferlach Klezmer Band performed at this conference more than once. There was a lot of singing and um, celebrating, and people would stay up for hours and hours into the night talking. It was so exciting because you got to see these wonderful people that you didn't see all year and got to hear about their lives in their communities. And they are still my friends. Beyond the socializing and celebrating, there was plenty of educational programming as well. And it was as Vermonty as it gets, in a Jewish sort of way. Workshops over the years ranged from Why I Am Not in Services, Alternative Ways of Expressing Jewish Spirituality, and the vegetarian consciousness in Judaism, to workshops like spiritual menopause and how to dance at a Jewish wedding. 
But there were also workshops and services geared towards more conservative and orthodox Jews. I think it was our objective to create a trans-denominational Jewish experience. That was part of the vision. There are so few of us in New England, there really isn't enough of us to endure denominational rivalry. Over the years, the conference grew and grew. Prominent Jewish figures like Madeleine Kunin, Bernie Sanders, and Julius Lester participated. Notable Jewish journalist Wolf Blitzer would show up from time to time, too. And rabbis and other Jewish clergy from across the Northeast would make the trip. Eventually, so did Jews from Montreal. Jews everywhere recognized the need for community in order to affirm and practice Jewish identity. The conference is simply an expression of what Jews do everywhere. As soon as there's a handful of Jews, there's a congregation. In fact, if you get one more than a handful, you generally have two congregations. Those Jews who burn the midnight oil in the Linden State dorm rooms for one weekend in June each year left with a renewed sense of inspiration and connection, feelings that remained throughout the year, long after that one euphoric weekend had ended. Well, I did notice that the conference seemed to encourage the development of more conventional Jewish communities around the region. In the early 2000s, the Conference on Judaism in rural New England petered out. It's hard to get a straight answer as to why. A lack of funding was a factor, as was a feeling that it had simply run its course. People were just pretty much burned out. When the conference ended, I was so sad, so sad. I mean, people were so sad about it. The conference had done its work. It had had its effect. There were all of these new Jewish communities around New England, and uh, Jews uh, had found any number of ways to affirm their identity and their sense of community conference wasn't necessary anymore. By that time, it is true that we did have more synagogues. We did have more Jewish life going on. It wasn't as hard to be Jewish in Vermont by then. Chapter 5. A New Wave. Today, there are 19 Jewish congregations around Vermont, as well as a handful of informal Jewish communities. That's according to Susan Leff, president of Temple Sinai in South Burlington and the founder of Jewish Communities of Vermont, our only statewide Jewish organization. She also estimates, conservatively, that Vermont's Jewish population numbers about 20,000. This might not sound like a lot, it's just 3% of the total Vermont population, but consider that Jews make up less than 2.5% of the U.S. population, and only about 0.19% of the world population. And over the last few years, the pandemic has led to a new influx of Jews moving here as young people continue becoming disillusioned with city life. And I was one of those people. I moved here in the summer of 2021 after spending most of my life in Boston. A few months after I got here, Sam Leviston arrived from the Bay Area. 
Being Jewish is a big part of my identity and who I am. Sam, as it happens, is today's question asker, the person who sent me on this quest to explore Vermont's Jewish history. I'm back in Vermont. I'm trying to, like, reestablish my roots and build my community again. She went to UVM for undergrad, left for a few years. Now she's back. And her interest in Vermont's Jewish past is motivated by a desire to feel truly comfortable here in the present. Yeah, and so, you know, obviously the first thing I've been thinking about is, you know, how do I tap into, you know, the warmth of the Jewish community here? And, and what does that look like? Um, what's its history? And yeah, all those, all those pieces. One of the things that stood out to Sam the most since moving back to Vermont is how some Vermont Jews connect or don't to being Jewish. Like, I'm super open about being Jewish, but I've met a lot of people who know they have some Jewish heritage, but they don't view it as their identity. Like, I have celebrated holidays, but I'm not Jewish. Sam is not alone in her observation. A sense of apathy among Vermont Jews came up in multiple conversations during my reporting. And while everyone's connection to their religious and cultural heritage is their own business, seriously, no judgment. This is also not a new trend. But in, in the rural areas, growing up, if, if you have any amount of anti-Semitism, it's much easier for them to become apathetic about their Judaism than in a, in a larger area. This is from a 1978 recording stored at the Vermont Historical Society. It's a discussion among a group of Vermont Jews about Jewish life in Vermont. And if you're talking about rural Judaism here, this, the apathy problem, I think, is a direct directly related to the anti-Semitism problem. Anti-Semitism. It's impossible to tell a complete story about Vermont Jewish history without acknowledging the role it has played on both an interpersonal and a systemic level. In the 1930s, for instance, a statewide referendum for a scenic road atop the Green Mountains was defeated in part over concerns that Vermont would turn into the Catskills, filled with Jewish vacationers from New York City. Also, as a policy, Jews weren't allowed in many Vermont hotels until at least the 1950s. No Hebrews allowed, or Gentiles only, were often included in hotel ads and on signs. And anti-Semitism in Vermont isn't just a thing of the past. The Anti-Defamation League, which tracks anti-Semitism, has recorded nearly 30 anti-Semitic incidents in Vermont since 2017. Incidents involving swastikas and hate speech, among other things. The most common form of despair is not being who you are. That's Rabbi Toby Weissman, quoting the philosopher Kierkegaard. So whether or not anti-Semitism or a fear of anti-Semitism is the cause of someone's religious or cultural apathy, Rabbi Weissman has a message for Vermont Jews who don't feel very quote-unquote Jewish. If you're Jewish and you're living in Vermont, there's so many people who don't know a thing about being Jewish. They don't know a thing about Judaism. And it makes you feel kind of like an outsider. Yeah, you might just be a cultural Jew, but there's something about being Jewish that is different. And so just to be around other Jews celebrating being Jewish, it, it, it's important. It's really, really important. Our question asker, Sam, has been searching for the type of Jewish connection Rabbi Weissman is advocating for. I've done some research. I mean, here it seems like it's a more, you know, via synagogue or like through Chabad 
um, which is, you know, more religiously oriented. And I've thought about it and I want to check it out, but I'm also curious about maybe building something or creating something that is a little less formal. Sam, you're in good company. Vermont Jewish life is largely self-directed, shaped more by the people than by a handful of long-standing institutions. And to be fair, Vermont does have those too. Six of the state's 19 Jewish congregations date back at least 100 years. But even members of the same congregation in Vermont might practice Judaism in a range of ways. I've come to think of it like a Jewish choose-your-own-adventure, an approach that's especially necessary in more remote areas. Hello. At the end of February, I traveled to Barnet, near the southern end of the Northeast Kingdom, to a yurt that nearly blended in with the white landscape, save for a metal chimney poking out the top. Pull up a chair. Oh my God, this stove is incredible. <laughs> it's a fun stove. It's yeah. beautiful. It's beautiful. Christmas. It's really good for cooking and not great for like heating. I'm visiting Nellie and Ira Wolf, a Jewish couple who are living in this year year round until they finish fixing up the house on their property. Do you like slippers for the cold floor? Oh no, I'm fine. I got pretty thick socks on. Um, Ira grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community in New York City. Nellie in an atheist household in Brattleboro and converted to Judaism more recently. Is it hard to be Jewish in Vermont? Sometimes. Yeah, I I like it better than being Jewish in New York City, I'd say. In New York, Ira says there's a lot of trying to fit in with the Orthodox community, which means you either subscribe to specific Orthodox community norms or you stop being able to practice Judaism. So he left. And he came to Vermont so he could live out a Jewish life on his own terms. You get a lot of freedom here to define uh, what Judaism means to you. That freedom does not come at the expense of community. It's part of it. There's a spirit of inclusivity that is both a testament to the people who practice it and also to the need for self-preservation. You can't just expect the community to be there. You have to draw the community to you every time. Vermont Judaism never was and still isn't inevitable. And while I can speak from experience when I say that it'd be nice to be able to find a Jewish deli a little more easily, there's also something special about participating in a community that quite literally relies on every one of its members just to keep existing. Uh, None of them taking it for granted. It's Um, not something that you do because your neighbors do it. Right, exactly. Because your neighbors are not doing it and do not know why you are. Yeah. Uh... There is so much more kind of communal Judaism. There's so much more like we have been asked to attend shul on certain Saturday mornings so that there will be enough people to say the mourner's Scottish. Recently, Nellie found yet another way to connect with Judaism in Vermont and beyond. She's a weaver by trade. And a little over a year ago, she founded Black Cat Judaica, a company specializing in tali tote, Jewish prayer shawls. And it's been going gangbusters ever since, pretty much. Meeting Nellie and Ira, I was struck by the sense of responsibility they feel to educate those who aren't familiar with Jewish tradition. Passover, for instance, a holiday commemorating the exodus of Jews from slavery in Egypt, is a prime opportunity. We've been hosting our own Passover seders for the last couple of years. It's a really great opportunity to sort of 
um, share Judaism with with other people um, who aren't necessarily Jewish. Yeah, most of the people who are coming to our home for uh, Jewish holidays are not themselves Jew- Jewish. So, uh, we do. While Nellie and Ira aren't always surrounded by other Jews in their day-to-day life, they're part of a long legacy of Jewish Vermonters, people who have had to take matters into their own hands and build the types of communities they craved be it a network of Jews from across rural New England searching for a new type of connection, or a Burlington neighborhood filled with Jews holding on to their Lithuanian heritage in a strange land, or Jews looking for a warm bed in Pulteney to take a break from the pack peddler lifestyle. Epilogue. May their memory be a blessing. So right now we're kind of in the middle of the road here on Town Hill Road in East Pulteney, Vermont. Um, As you can see behind us here is the main East Pulteney Cemetery, very large. And right across the street is the East Pulteney Jewish Cemetery. So the East Pulteney Jewish Cemetery is Vermont's oldest Jewish cemetery. One of the last and best reminders that the people in the Minutes book, the people of Vermont's earliest known Jewish congregation, we're real. So as we enter in right here, we're going into the backmost corner of the cemetery on the left side. 19-year-old Netanel Crisp, an ultra-Orthodox Jew from nearby Danby, showed me around. Um, and we have two really incredible pieces of history here. The stones of Marcus or Mordechai Cain, or Cohen, and his wife uh, right next to him. Marcus Cain, born in 1793 in Hessen, Germany. Buried in 1874 in East Pulteney, Vermont. A retired pack peddler and founding member of Vermont's earliest known Jewish congregation. So he was the first one buried here. His wife passed away two years later and is buried right next to him. It wouldn't have been possible for me to visit this place just a few years ago. Barely anyone in town knew it existed. And those that did, didn't really know where to find it. Until my tour guide, Netanel, came along. One of people's kind of greatest fears is of being forgotten. Um, and I think that really is true across the board for all people. It's just human nature. Even though he's still a teenager, Netanel serves as a trustee at various historical societies around the state. He's big into metal detecting and works with the societies to dig up relevant artifacts. During one of his metal detecting excursions in the summer of 2020, he got a tip about an old Jewish cemetery here in East Pulteney. Um, which was news to me. I've lived here for eight years, just down the road. I'm a 10th generation Vermonter. I've spent years in Pulteney and never had a clue that this was here. So um, that immediately was like, wow, I got to find this. I want to know what it is. It took Netanel multiple attempts to find it. The entire thing was overgrown and had fallen into disrepair. So even though he was still in high school at the time, he decided to do something about it. I would leave school early. I actually, my teachers were like totally cool with it. They, they sent me, um, so I'd come and just was hauling out debris and brush, um, doing meetings and things of that nature. From time to time, Netanel says his teachers and classmates would join him to help out. And the restoration effort snowballed from there. He's raised nearly $20,000 to date to support his work. The cemetery restoration this last fall, we had roughly 25 volunteers. Uh, and one day we're able to, as you see, to clean and reset all these headstones, which was tremendous work. We had to pick all these stones up, some of them weighing over four or 500 pounds, um, dig out a new foundation for them, 
make sure that that was level and put the stones back, which was a very tremendous process doing by hand. Uh, it sounds like it was quite the workout. It was, yeah. And that was just kind of one uh, step in the, the overall process. As I said, I started- They've cleared brush, August, digitized uh, cemetery records. Soon, the cemetery will get a new gate with proper signage so people can find it more easily. Also on the docket, registering the cemetery as an official state historic site. I was able to meet with uh, dozens of different descendants related to different families and individuals in the cemetery, hear their stories. Some of them came out and volunteered. Some of them in their 80s and even 90s came out and volunteered. Hearing their stories, this was no longer I'm cleaning a headstone of some stranger. This is kind of a testament and a, a marker to that individual, their life, their story, which is something that not only should be documented, but appreciated, learned from, um, and preserved long-term or in perpetuity itself. Um, so in doing that, discovering those different anecdotes and being able to, uh, in certain way, put those people back to life. The East Pulteney Jewish Cemetery is a fitting place to end this story, to remember the roots of Judaism in Vermont, and also to recognize just how fragile memory and the preservation of history can be. Um, it's very peaceful up here. We're on kind of this back road. Um, and I just, I love being here. So I actually showed up early today for the first 15 minutes. I just walked around and uh, kind of appreciated seeing and knowing how this looked before and how it looks now. It's, it's wonderful. so much for listening to the show and to Sam Leviston for the great question. If you have a question you want us to tackle in an upcoming episode, ask it at bravelittlestate.org. That's also where you can find photos from my reporting and other resources about past and present Jewish communities in Vermont. Our BLS hotline is 802-552-4880 or reach out on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at BraveStateVT. I reported this episode and did the mix and sound design. Additional production and editing from the Brave Little State team. Angela Evansy, Myra Flynn, and VPR News Fellow Marlon Hyde. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music. Other music by Myra Flynn, Blue Dot Sessions, and the Nishtke Fairlock Klezmer Band. Special thanks to Bruce Post, Paul Carnahan, Kate Phillips, Sue Halpern, Rabbi Linda Motzkin, Rabbi Jonathan Rubenstein, Stacey Gabbert, Michaela Lefrac. Mary Engish, and Robert Resnick. Thanks also to everyone who reached out about this story to Brave Little State on social media. That's Thomas, Mark, Allison, Alex, Rachel, Celine, Jonah, and Susie. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from VPR sustaining members. You can become one of those at bravelittlestate.org donate. Or just tell your friends about the show. I'm Josh Crane. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont storytelling. Mm-hmm.